Well, this morning I want you to turn in your Bibles with me, and I do hope you have a Bible or a device where you can see it. Doesn't matter what Pastor Brian says or I say or some other man or woman says, what does God's Word say? We still are a people that believe one of the richest things we have is God's Word revealed to us. And I think it's a privilege to be one of His ambassadors to communicate it. But look with God's word with me. Romans chapter 12. And we're going to be looking at verses 9 to 21. And here's why I want us to look at these verses. Because I think this passage, Romans 9 verses not, Romans 12, sorry, verses 9 to 21, is one of the most relevant passages we could be digging into today in light of all that's going on in our culture right now around us and the world around us. It's no secret to anyone here today, is it? If you're awake and you have a pulse at all, that there's a huge culture war going on. That the secular ways of thinking, there's always been differences between Christians and non-Christians, but the, the divide has grown such, there's a Grand Canyon distance between Judeo-Christian thinking and the secular thinking that is out there in the marketplace today. And so the rhetoric, this is what I sense, I'm not ancient, but I'm 53, so I've been around a while. The rhetoric and the level of hostility today and the fear between these two groups as well as the lobbing of verbal grenades back and forth between each other is escalating and the two sides rarely play nice but here's what is also obvious to me way too often and it grieves me way too often I feel like Both sides are fighting with the same kind of weapons. Christians thinking we're going to win this war using the same weapons that our world uses. So here's what I want you to know as we dig into this passage this morning. I want you to know as we dig into this passage, this was a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to Christians who were living in the city of Rome during a time when they were being mocked and marginalized and even persecuted in ways far worse than what we're, times are changing, yes, but as Americans, we need to realize far worse persecution is taking place. It may be coming, but it's not here yet, so let's stop acting like, oh, 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 and let's not react in the flesh. How would Paul speak to a group of Christians like us living in times like these? Now follow me as I read Romans chapter 12, verses 9 to 21. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love in honor giving preference to one another. Not lagging in diligence. Fervent in spirit. Serving the Lord. Rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer, distributing to the needs of the saints, given to hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind towards one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, be at peace. Be at peace with all men. 
Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy hungers, feed him. If he thirsts, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with, say it, good. Oh yeah, we're in a culture war today, no doubt about it, if you're paying attention. But I want to show you from these verses, I hope, the strategies and priorities of our heavenly Father as to how he's called us to fight this war. And I hope you picked up on it already, just hearing God's word read. I hope you picked up on it that love is at the very heart and center of this campaign we're supposed to be about. So here's the first thing I want you to get from this passage. Number one, it matters how you fight. It's not just, well, jump in there and do whatever you want because the stakes are high, evil is so rampant, and we're the good guys, so we can do this any way we want. No. Look at verse 21. We're going to start at the end, and then I'm going to jump back and walk through the passage. Verse 21 is what drives this home to us, and I want you to see it because it is so radical. Do not be overcome by evil. Would it not be easy today to just feel or be overcome by evil. It just seems like the escalation of how quickly things are deteriorating and how fast things are, like, oh my goodness, in the last 10 years, in the last five years, it would be easy to be overcome by evil. Don't. But overcome evil with, say it, good. Are you kidding me? Let's be honest. Don't you feel a little bit like, that is so lame, Things are so bad. Are you kidding me? Is that going to get it done? It's going to take more. We would have never thought of doing it that way, would we? Be honest. We would never have thought of doing it that way. But that's the strategy God gives us because King Jesus is the one leading us into this battle, and it's an upside-down kingdom. And so it's an upside-down, backwards kind of fight. But make sure you understand, upside-down, backwards filled with good, does not mean wimpy. Doesn't mean wimpy, because listen, right in that one verse, verse 21, he uses a Greek word twice that means to victoriously overcome. It's the Greek word nike, from which the, the Greek goddess Nika gets, gets her name. And, and I hope you recognize it a little bit. It's also the name of the giant sporting good company. Listen, Phil Knight the founder and CEO of Nike Sporting Goods wasn't looking for a wimpy word to label his company with. And when you think about Nike commercials, are you left thinking wimpy? No, you're thinking sweat, go, win. Nike, Nike, Nike. So we're not talking wimpy, but we are talking radical. Go hard with good. It matters how you fight. Number two. It matters what you feel while you fight. And that might take you back for a minute, especially if you've been a part of a good Bible teaching church like this. We just rolled out of a Bible teaching conference where if you're not careful, you might think, ooh, 
Feelings are bad. We don't do anything with feelings. We run from feelings. We're not concerned about feelings. Doesn't matter what you feel. We're people of the truth. We're people of the word. It's what's the, what is the truth? What do I believe? First, it's not what the Bible teaches that feelings don't matter and feelings are bad. What the Bible teaches you is don't be ruled by your feelings, led by your feelings. Be a man or woman of truth. But listen to me. We've got too many Christians that have made this mistake to think, and once you've got the, the corner on truth, the market on truth, Proverbs says, buy the truth and sell it not. Yay, please do that. But listen to me, I believe from this passage, you can see that God is telling us, once you believe, you think you know what God's word says, ask him to light a fire in you and give you a passion for it. God hasn't called us to be dispassionate about what we believe in any way. Let me show you what I'm talking about from these verses. Look at verse nine. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. That little verse is loaded with fierce verbs. Paul says abhor what is evil. The word abhor means to detest vehemently, to find repugnant, to loathe and regard with horror. Sounds like feelings are kicking in big time. Even though there's so much going on, don't get numb to evil. Don't settle in. Don't be like the frog in the kettle that after a while it doesn't repulse you like it did. You don't loathe it like you did. It doesn't shock you like, abhor what is evil. Abhor what is evil. Strong feelings. But what about good? Look at what it says about good. Cling to what is good. That word means to hold fast, to embrace it, to love it. I'm going to create an awkward moment, but I'm a guest and I'm going to fly out of here. <laughs> that Greek word, to give you a sense of the, the passion and this, this matter strong, it's the same Greek. Cling to what is good is the same Greek word, young people, stop your ears, that's used in 1 Corinthians 6 to speak of a husband and wife in sexual intimacy. Passionate. Cling to what is good. Cling to what is good. John Piper put it this way. Christianity is not merely choosing the right thing. It's choosing with intensity. Yes, yes. I know personality comes into play and, and a lot of people can be guilty of saying, well, you're kind of frothy, Brad. We know you're always that way, just frothy and just, I'm not. I'm just more... Hey, that's fine. Within your own God-given personality, whatever it looks like, whatever wide open, wholehearted, white, hot, I believe it looks like, if that for you is the, hallelujah, then <laughs> let me see it regarding the things of God. But here's what I say to our church family. We live in Cincinnati. We got the Reds. We got the Bengals. And I got people that push back on me. And this is just kind of who I am. This is who I am. I'm not like you, Brad. And then I see them at a Bengals game coming out of their seat. Yeah! And church would get, yeah, what's up? If you say you believe it, and it's the things of God, and it's things of eternal consequences, if you've got right doctrine, and I hope you do in a church like this, you have plenty of opportunities to be fed on it and get it. Ask God to take you to that next level if that's missing and say, light a fire in me and give me a passion for what I say I believe because I think in these days, it matters. It matters. Don't hear me saying, ride on your emotions. Just 
stir up emotions for no reason. And so we're so careful as evangelicals sometimes to want to push away from the people, and I do too, who are barking like a dog and rolling in the aisle and laughing for three months and doing a dance in the spirit and all this nonsense, that we end up just being the people that believe the Bible but feel nothing because that's wrong. Not. Let's not let them have what God's called all of us to. Keep truth right there. But when truth grips you, when you haven't lost the amazing in front of grace, when you still realize he saved me, he rescued me, he called me, he wants to use me, I get to be ambassador of of Jesus Christ in our culture. These are the last days. I'm a pilgrim. I'm a foreigner. I'm a stranger. I have a chance to invest my life in what matters most. There ought to be some passion that starts to kick in. If it's not there, ask him for it. It matters how you fight. What's good? It matters what you feel as you fight. He hasn't called us to be dispassionate and just kind of characterized by a warmed up whatever. Warmed up whatever will never get it. Remember what Jesus said about the churches, seven churches in Asia? There was one that was a warmed up whatever. In Revelation 3, 15, 16, he says, I know your works, that you're neither cold or hot. And so often we pride ourselves. Well, I know I'm not white hot for Jesus Christ, but I'm not frozen chosen either. I'm probably on a scale of one to 10, I'm a five. Here's what Jesus does with five. <laughs> I'm not making this up. Revelation 3, 15, 16, I know your works, that you're neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. That's what Jesus does with half-hearted, warmed up, whatever. When you look at the words he chose to use in this passage, they're fierce words. I think the word fierce love captures it well. Fierce love. Because the word fierce means turbulent, vigorous, furiously eager turbulent, vigorous, furiously. See, because I know I've got to help you with that word love because if we're not careful, it just falls flat on you, like the word good. Some of these words have just had the, have the real meaning sucked out of them to where love, oh, whatever, good, oh. Fierce love, fierce love. Let me ask you, does that describe your Christianity and the way you seek to leave, live your life? You say you believe this set of beliefs about Christ and the resurrection and atonement and end times and what matters most. To any degree would fierce, furious, turbulent, vigorous characterize the way you seek to live what you say you believe out? Or are you guilty of sound doctrine but feelings that could be described as a warmed up whatever? matters how you fight it matters what you feel as you fight and number three it matters where you start in this fight you can't just jump in at any place it matters where you start and he actually guides us and it might surprise you Paul says okay yeah there's evil out there yeah there's wicked out there there's plenty of that I need you to do in overcoming evil with good but listen before you rush out into the community before you start railing against start by killing your own pride. I think the pride of Christians has done significant damage in the ability of the world to listen to our message. Start by, we do not speak to our culture from the moral high ground, folks. If that's how you come across, may God help you repent. 
That's why so often they're not listening. It sounds like we're saying we're so much better than they are and I would have never and I can't believe you. The only reason you haven't done everything we're reading about is the grace of God in your life. We are not better. We have been rescued. And so he says, start by killing your own pride. In verse 16, look at it. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. Why would Paul hit this whole pride thing again? Because he already hit it in verse three. If you look at verse three, he's already touched on it. He's coming back to it in verse 16. I'll tell you why. Here's why I think he hits it twice in this passage. Because... Pride will get in the way of you obeying just about everything in this passage. Let me give you an example. Look at verse 15. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Doesn't sound too complicated. Sounds kind of simple, right? Okay, whatever. Listen to me. If you are eaten up with pride, you can't rejoice with those that rejoice because you're so busy wishing it had happened to you and you're so busy judging them thinking they don't deserve it. I deserve it. Why do they get that? Not me. You can't rejoice with those that rejoice. Oh, but it gets worse. You can't weep with those that weep because when you're eaten up with pride, if it doesn't affect you, it doesn't matter. Let me put it to you this way. Pride will cripple you and disable you from obeying so much of God's commands. To to rejoice. You gotta be humble to genuinely think, you got it, and I'm rejoicing that it happened to you, brother, to you, sister. Oh, you're going through that trial? I hurt with you. It takes a humble, lowly heart to rejoice with others and to weep with others. A proud person can't even begin to love other people well. And that's what this passage is about, loving, starting in the inside of the church and pushing out. So before you get a banner and a crusade and you're just fired up about evil and you're fired about the truth of God's word, before you rush out there, consider, do I need to give any attention to my heart? How am I coming across towards brothers and sisters as well as lost people in the community? He says, start by killing your own pride. Then there's a surprise. He says, secondly, start by loving your own kind. Start by killing your own pride. Start by loving your own kind. Other Christians right here in the family of God. Look at it in verse 10. See, he's gonna get to overcome evil with good out there in the world with enemies, but he starts here. Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love in honor giving preference to one another. The ESV says outdo one another in showing honor. Let's be honest. When you see verses in the Bible about love each other right here, brotherly love. If you've been a part of the church for any length of time, I grew up in the church. I was saved when I was seven. I was on staff at a church for 10 years in South Carolina and I did a church plant in Kentucky and I've been there over 20 years. I have struggled with this. I imagine you have too. It is not easy to love other Christians in your church. That's why so many Christians go from church to church. And I'll, I'll represent pastors too who complain about that so much, about people doing it. We do it too. That's why pastors change churches so often. 
we find it so hard to love who is here. And we hope we could find another group, but all you find is a different zip code. And the guy named Ted that drove you crazy is now named George. But there's one of them there. (laughs) And Betty, who you thought was just, oh, there's a Sally. And God says, hello. People are people are people. Don't run. Learn to love. Notice I said that. It is not natural. We, act, we, we think, well, Jesus lives in me. Of course I'm loving. No, you love the people that you like, that do the same things you do, that don't rub you the wrong way, that you would have chosen to have as friends. I mean, think about it. Right in the church, you can all say, I love Jesus. You too. Me too. We both love Jesus. We're going to be best friends. B-F-F-F. No, maybe not. Because if your church is like our church, and I didn't ask Pastor Brian, so I'm going out on a limb here. We got people in my church. Let me just talk about my church. We got people that listen to country music. That's right. We got people that listen to rap. Gasp. We got people that listen to classical, and we got people that think you should only listen to Christian music. We got some people that drink alcohol in moderation and others that don't drink at all and don't think anyone should drink at all. Even though we're Bible-believing, teaching, etc., we've got some people that speak in tongues privately. And we got others that think it's a nut thing and it's gone, it's done, it's cessation, it ended, da, 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 da. We got people that homeschool through high school if you love Jesus. We got others that choose to put their kids in the public school to be salt and light. We've got people, oh my goodness, we've got people, this is gonna shock some of you, that vote Democrat. <laughs> I, and they love Jesus. And they've explained to me how they can do it. I, I, I don't understand, but. <laughs> and others that vote Republican. We got people that are highly educated and some that are less so. We got people that grew up with nothing but concrete and urban jungle and others wide open spaces and fresh air. We've got people that have their children vaccinated right on schedule and others that have great concerns and try to put posters around the church and then all my medical doctors freak out and say, that's why we have polio again. Please don't do this. Just focus on the gospel. We got people that are trying to sell juice plus plus the gospel and don't understand why you're not into this. We got people that take Take antibiotics for a sinus infection are so happy for it and others that want to grind an, grind an herb and snort it and say that's the only thing you should do. Some Christians use birth control and others are like, you're supposed to have all the children God gives you. And so they've got their own Israel with the 12 tribes. <laughs> We've got mothers who breastfeed and some that gasp, use formula in a bottle. But even all the breastfeeding mothers don't get along because some breastfeed on demand. Just I'm a milk machine. <laughs> And others think you should schedule the breastfeeding. We've got some, we've got mothers that work outside the home and some that are full stay, stay-at-home moms choosing to do that. We've got mothers who are wound up about organic and eating clean. And we've got others that are handing out Pop-Tarts and Fruit Loops to the glory of God. Don't need to go on? I haven't even hit on debt and credit cards, right? Okay. And this all is happening with the same group of people that say, I once was lost, but now I'm saved. I was on the way to hell, and now I'm on the way to heaven. I believe Jesus is the only way, and I believe the Bible is the word of God, and yet there's all those differences. God never intended us then to form an organic, living, clean, only Christian music, only homeschool, do not drink alcohol church. So then I'll feel so good because everyone's doing the same thing. You know what puts on display the amazement of the gospel to the world? When they actually realize how different we are in so many ways and say, how can they all love each other? But so often we don't. We just think, I got to get out of this church and in one where everybody blah, blah, blah. 
And even if you're pushing back right now and thinking, I can't love everybody in this church that's filled with so many goofballs and weirdos and misfits and people I would have never chosen for a friend. Hold that thought. You got it? Goofballs, weirdos, misfits. If nobody's coming to your mind, it's you. Because God has them everywhere. And you're, you're a blessing. It's your gift. Because here's what God would say back. Hold that thought. Perfect. Now you will have to cry out to me, cry out to me and say, oh God, I can't. I don't have it. I can't. I don't feel it. It's not there naturally. God, news alert, God never intended to fill one particular church with all the people you would find easy to love. He never designed it to be easy or natural. It is supernatural. That's why Jesus, of everything he could have said in John 13, said, by this the world will know you are my disciples by your Christian logo fish bumper stickers. <laughs> no. By your amazing end time charts. No. By your colored pencils and markings. And, no. By your, say it. For who? Which, which sounds so lame. At first you're like, what? There's got to be something else that would characterize us more than that. But all you have to do is be in a church for a while to say, that'd be pretty amazing. By your love for, that's why you don't want to drive everyone out of the church that isn't doing exactly like, don't hear me saying gross sin issues should be allowed. Don't hear what I'm not saying, but we're talking about gray areas and there's a lot of them and they just constantly change. Keep the main thing, the main thing. It is so dangerous and easy. I watch Christians try to unify themselves around non-essential issues far greater message to our world of the power of the gospel when you keep the main thing the main thing and prefer one another and forbear and love even though someone else has chosen something very different regarding school choice or whatever. You love and you don't look down on them and say, one day when you grow up and put your big boy Christian pants on, you'll think like I do. It's not that we just despise them and tolerate them. That is short of love. It's far more than that. It's, notice he says you love them and you give them honor. You give them honor. You actually walk away thinking maybe I'm missing something. Maybe I should reconsider this because they know Jesus and they do this and it's not my choice. Hmm. It's not that you walk away saying, doofus. I think they love Jesus, but surely when they really do and they mature and become an oak of righteousness, they'll do all those other things that I do also. Watch out. It matters how you fight. It's good. It matters how you feel as you fight. Fierce love, passionate. It matters where you start in this fight. Start by killing your own pride. Start by practicing it with your own kind. I really do believe that local church was intended to be a greenhouse where we learn to love. Because folks, if we can't love each other who all claim to know Jesus Christ, how in the world are we gonna push out there and begin to love people that revile us and come against us and perhaps even persecute us? Third place he tells us to start is start by rethinking the place of your home. That's where he goes in verse 13. Start by radically rethinking the place and purpose of your home regarding outsiders. Look at verse 13. Distributing to the needs of the saints, given to hospitality. Now, before you brush that word off the table as a feminine, soft little word that you might associate with Martha Stewart and Pinterest and recipes, 
Don't do that. The word hospitality, folks, is, is the Greek word philoxenia, made up of two words, philos, love, xenos, stranger, foreigner, love, of a stranger and foreigner. So here's where we miss it often. When we think hospitality, we think of having four of our best friends over for a board game night and a cookout. That may be koinonia, fellowship. It is not philoxenia. It's not hospitality. You haven't even begun to practice verse 13 until you've had some very different, strange people into your home. Now this is gonna be awkward because you begin to invite people and you say, they've never invited us before. But after the sermon, they decided we are strange and now we have an invitation. <laughs> so don't get skittish with each other. Don't read more into it than what's going on. But you're not practicing verse 13 and living it out until you've started having people that maybe you aren't comfortable with that you wouldn't have chosen. They seem so different, but you have them over into your home. Is it a risk? Yeah, yeah. Could there be fears? No doubt. Could it be awkward? It might. And it also just might be the first time that person tasted the love of Jesus at close range. There's something about our homes, folks. You know what keeps Christians so often from practicing hospitality in America? Especially in America. When you go other cultures, it's not so much, and it breaks my heart. We are so bound up with entertaining, we never do hospitality because it's all about the place settings and the perfect meal and it's got to be something so unusual and the whole house is perfectly clean and candles are lit in the bathrooms and we cleaned all the windows inside and out and therefore we have someone over once a year because it wipes us out to even get ready for it. It's a show. It's entertainment. Folks, this hospitality can happen with a cardboard box of pizza. Please swish the toilet if there's mold. You know, get, get obvious immediate urine off the lid. Do the basics. But don't go crazy and, and spend an hour on the internet. It's got to be an amazing dish that use, uses herbs no one's ever heard of. And it's got this like floral pattern and, and you flew in some fish puffer fish that <laughs> if never, just, it's not about the food. It's about you opening your home and your heart. And here's the deal that you're missing as an American. The days of stadium, crusade, evangelism, is waning because we live at such a fast-paced, high-tech, people are starved for the personal touch, especially from other cultures. They're wondering why they don't get invited to homes. You, you need to know that as a Christian and American. They, I read a heartbreaking article where an international student was stateside, had an American room, roommate, and they lived four years together, graduated, he was heading back to his country, and he left this suitcase in the guy's room and said, you can just have that. He said, why? What's What's in it? He said, all the gifts I brought to give to hosts who would have me over to their homes, but nobody did. So you can have it. Ow! If you're like us, we have universities and colleges near us. There are international students in your area, some that you can't get into their country because it's illegal, and missionaries were spending thousands of dollars to try to get them in as tent makers to share the gospel, to build a relationship. They're coming to America, not just the fringe people of those countries. I read an article that said 270 of the current leaders of nations was educated in a college in America. College education. I thought to myself, wonder how many had a Christian invitation to a home while they were here. We got the chance 
to love them, share the gospel with them, bring them into our home. At clo- there is something about a home, folks, a home, a home. We've got to rethink this, that your home is not just your castle and you pull up the moat and it's your refuge and that's where you retreat and it's not for anybody else. Verse 13 said, don't hear me saying there's not a place and time to do some of that. But I got to ask you, because I push to do this. It's not easy for me. I'm actually an introvert. I'd rather sit and read on the patio and only have people I know, like my wife. But I say, come on, bring it. I push, come on, come on. Because this calls me to use my home as more than a refuge, but to use my home as a place where we practice fierce love, the ability to love a stranger, to love someone different. He says, start by killing your own pride. Start by loving your own kind. Start by radically rethinking the place and purpose of your home. He intended your home to be a place where you practice loving people. And you may need to get better at loving the people that live there, but that's not what verse 13 is talking about. That's a different sermon, different passage. He's saying, bring some people in intentionally and love them. Love them. There's a young guy in my church that I've gotten to know, and he's a brand new Christian. He's had a little bit of a hard life, and I had him over at the house one night just talking at the kitchen table, and he shared something with me that so moved me. I said, would you give me permission to to use that and share it? Because it was so profound. He stated it so well. So he wrote it down and gave me permission. Let me read you this example because I think he's way ahead of me on this. But this is what this verse 13 is pushing. He said, since becoming a believer after college, I've bounced around a great deal. I've been a lonely nomad dreaming about deeper relationships with other Christians. For all my dreaming, I consistently failed to tether myself to any particular local church body for any extended amount of time. Most Christians just seem so different from me. I wanted community with those who were similar to me, with those likely to understand me. Consequently, I continued bouncing around and feeling alone. Shortly after coming to Grace Fellowship, that's our church, I started biblical counseling. And one of the most important lessons for me was that Christ himself understands suffering, my suffering, My counselor gave me an article from Desiring God Ministries about how Christ understands loneliness and suffering. I had been guilty of clinging to the view that my particular suffering gave me the right to be selfish in my views of community and to demand that the community look the way I wanted it to look. But Jesus' suffering didn't stifle his service and sacrifice for those whom he loved. As I was learning these weighty lessons, I began to notice something. I began to notice the people around me. I began to realize that other people around me were individuals with struggles and sin issues and pain of their own. They were just like me. And so I got excited as I realized that they need the same encouragement I have found in Christ. I could now serve them. Jesus' model of Christian community is incredible. His friends were total morons at times. He experienced anguish that none of them could ever imagine. He was different than they were, very different. If anyone could have ever said, you guys just don't get me, it was Jesus. But he didn't. And he didn't pull away and stop loving them. Getting a hold of that has shaped my admiration for the Christian discipline of hospitality. I realize now I can serve others. And this guy has people into his home all the time, all kinds of different people. I realize I can serve others who feel alone because I know what that is like. I can open up my home, serve a meal, share a cup of coffee, be an open ear, an open home to someone who may be very different than me. Then I appreciate this. Sometimes you read these things and say, oh, whatever. He's like Mother Teresa. Then he makes this honest statement. Do I like hanging around all my Christian brothers and sisters? 
No. Can some of them be really annoying? Annoying? Yes. Are they pretty different than me? Very. Three exclamation points. But even they are teaching me lessons about our Lord that I need to learn. I'm growing into the example of Christ towards others and experiencing ever more deeply how great his love is for me while in the process of loving and serving others. Wow, he gets it. He gets what we're talking about here in verse 13. Rethink radically the place and purpose of your home. Then, then and only then, after you give a look at getting vigilant about your own pride, as you practice it here, loving your own kind, as you consider making your home a place to work on this, then and only then does he push outside the church and say, love those who would even persecute you and rail against you. That's where he goes next in verses 14 to 21. And for the sake of time, the only comment I'll make about that is that I want you to notice how specific and practical loving our enemies are. It's not that you just feel a warm, fuzzy feeling towards them, but you keep five miles away from them. Here's how I would say it to you. There's tons of specificity in verse 20 about how to love your enemies. If he's hungry, do what? If he's thirsty, how would you know if they're hungry or thirsty unless you're close enough in proximity to them to be aware of their needs? Now, I know every unbeliever isn't starving, but the point is they have needs. You won't know what those needs are if you only huddle up continually with other believers. You've got your own place to exercise and it's all Christian music and it's a men's basketball league, men's softball, everything. We want to be together, 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 together. I don't think God calls us to. I won't know what the needs are. I go to a secular gym on purpose, listen to bad music on purpose, hear the F word all around me on the treadmill on purpose so I can meet people and, and find out how I can pray for them and meet some needs. I've had a man over to a home with his wife who's so different than me on everything, gun control, drugs, you name it, everything I believe, he believes different. We've had so many conversations, and he finally said, do you ever walk? I said, sure. I walk around the church before I counsel. He came and walked with me and talked nonstop. Then I said, I'd love to have you and your wife over to our home. We went out to eat. We sat. We talked. I only was able to do that because I was out there in a gym, and I met him. We, we're not to huddle up here till Jesus comes. That's common. That's the new heaven and new earth. Right now, Christians, here's what I'd say. Christians are like manure, if you spread them around, they do a lot of good. If you pile it up, it stinks. Okay? So it's great that you come together here several times. You're to come together to get fed and instructed to go out and be salt and light. Get up against what's rotting. Be salt and light. Get up against that darkness and be light. It matters how you fight. It matters how you feel as you fight. It matters where you start in the fight. But I will have failed you if I don't give you one more Final point, it matters who you focus on and follow in this fight. We're not following the Republicans. We're not following Brian Hughes. We're not following any ministry or organization Christian. We're following Jesus Christ, King Jesus. So it would be good if we begin to model ourselves and think, how did King Jesus do this? We're his followers. The book of Hebrews was written to Christians who knew a lot about suffering and it was about to get worse. And he says in Hebrews 12, 2 and 3, let us run the race with endurance, fixing our eyes on Jesus, 
the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged. We've got Christians weary and discouraged in their souls because their eyes are not fixed on Jesus. It's fixed on Washington. It's fixed on conservative talk radio. It's fixed on all kinds of other places and you will lose heart. The only thing that will keep you hopeful and with a sense of here we go is keeping them on Jesus. Jesus. Think about how he loved people who supposedly were his followers that just didn't get him and loved them to the end. Remember how he washed their feet? To the end, right to the end, knowing who he was and how they had failed him and how they were about to really fail him, loved him. And then how he loved his enemies who brutally murdered him. As he says in Luke 23, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they're doing. We don't have to wonder how he would respond to other believers who don't get him and aren't his cup of tea. We don't have to wonder how he would respond to his enemies. Skip Ryan, in commenting on John 13, that passage, says this, I'm convinced that the most subtle temptation of our lives is not this or that obvious or gross thing, but the desire to be normal. Jesus calls us to lives that are not normal. It's not the normal life of having rights, of doing what we want to do, of building up our own prosperity, of being the person we want to be. When we follow Christ's example, we don't get normal. We get him. And then he says this, every follower of Christ should have at least one situation in his or her life where he or she is ridiculously, absurdly, irrationally, giving himself or herself away. Don't be normal. Be a Christian. Let's pray together. Oh God, how I thank you that we don't have to grope around and have a committee meeting to put together a strategy for how we're gonna impact our culture in dark times like this. Your word lays it out for us and we don't have to wonder where to fix our eyes and who to follow. Jesus has already led the way, took on flesh and modeled for us. How do you persevere in loving other believers who stumble and bumble and offend you and hurt your feelings and largely just don't get you and understand you? And how do you respond to enemies that revile you and seek to harm or even kill you? Bring our eyes back to Jesus In his name we pray, amen.